0: You know, the, the hardest thing was learning how to follow orders exactly to the T every time, including one of the things I think that drove people the craziest was folding clothes, because 18-year-old boys are not very good at folding clothes. The military demands that you fold all of your clothes exactly to the millimeter correctly. I, when he asked me what I wanted to be, I said, I want to be a photographer's mate. And he said no. And the reason he said no is because they had plenty of photographers, but he He said, you don't want your hobby to be your job. So he talked me into becoming um, an operations specialist after first trying to talk me into going to submarine school. but I had seen submarine movies. (laughs) So uh, I went to operations specialist school, which is operating radars and tracking friendly and unknown and enemy contacts on radar screens, both on the surface of the sea. You know, if I had not done that, I would not have had that intense growing up maturation period.
1: My name is Susan Edens and I've always loved good stories. This podcast will be a place for interesting people to tell their stories. My very first guest is an academic librarian with a past as a decorated sailor. Full disclosure, he's my older brother. I've always admired Wes and I wanted to know more about his time in the U.S. Navy, which happened to be during the Cold War. We sat down over Zoom two years ago during the COVID lockdown. So the audio is a little rough, but the story is what matters.
0: So my name is Wes Edens and I live in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm an academic librarian, have been for uh, quite a while and I'm uh, married to Melanie who's also a librarian and we have um, three kids who are pretty much all grown up now and um, off living their lives but um, you know when I'm not being a librarian I, 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 I read a lot which is probably not a big surprise and I, I um, ride bikes quite a bit and I really enjoy getting out and hiking and so you know, that's some things that over the past several years, the past decade that have become a more important part of my life is getting out and bicycling, getting out and hiking and, um, just kind of enjoying nature, um, a little more. Um, I grew up in Arizona, um, started, well, was born in Arkansas and my family moved to Arizona when I was, um, 15. I was a very impressionable age, again, where a lot of things happened. So I was a sophomore in high school. So I finished in Morency Arizona, go Wildcats. And um, after graduating, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. But I did um, start college right away. Um, graduated in May, and I started right away in summer school at University of Arizona in Tucson. And I, I did okay at the beginning. But um, I was a very um, youngish or immature 18-year-old, and yeah, wasn't really ready for college life. I, I didn't understand um, basically about how to, su- how to succeed in college and how to be a kind of a responsible student, and I, I, I failed a uh, honors chemistry class that, as I recall, had, was worth five credits. It was an enormous failure on my part in my mind at that time. So I was, um, you know, I was just kind of casting around a little bit and realizing that I was getting in trouble academically when the Navy came on campus and uh, they had a trailer set up, like a trailer, you could walk inside and um, they were trying to entice students who were near graduation, who would be officer material to, to join and be officers. And I was kind of entranced by that, but I realized at 18 with almost zero college credit, that was not my path. Um, but I ended up somehow going on a bus to downtown Tucson to the federal building just to kind of check things out. And of course, when you go into a recruiter's office just to check things out, it's very easy to be signing papers within a matter of hours. And that's that's kind of how I fell into the Navy.
1: You have uh, some family history with uh, the military and um, an uncle who at that time was still serving in the Navy.
0: Oh, that's true. And that was another kind of influence on me. It was when I was 11, I'd gone down with uh, my grandparents to Florida and I saw him graduate from basic training there. And um, Orlando, Florida is a pretty cool place when you're 11 years old and you see your uncle in Navy whites and... um, you know, that did that did leave an impression on me. He became an officer. Um and so that was kind of in, in the back of my mind also. And of course my dad was a, uh, a Korean war uh veteran. So there was some there was a little bit of precedent there.
1: Right. So you visit the recruiter's office, um you're already kind of psychologically primed to need to do something else, to, to need to find something that's going to help you. It sounds like grow more, grow up more, um, and give you some of those skills. And so how long is it before you're actually going to boot camp?
0: I don't remember the exact time frame, but it was probably late fall when I um, signed the initial papers. Um, and... Then in February of 1981, which coincidentally, you know, is 40 years ago right now as we record this, is when I um, reported um, to a boot camp in San Diego. So it wasn't a a huge amount of time.
1: What did, um, and full disclosure, we are brother and sister, (laughs) (laughs) what did our parents think of your decision?
0: Well, as I recall, I called uh, our mom first from the Federal Building. Um and said, Mom, I'm at the Federal Building and she said, Oh no, what did you do? <laughs> and I said, No, no, it's nothing like that. It's I um joined the Navy and she was um I she was shocked, but she was um supportive and um and didn't really um as I recall, didn't have a whole lot to say about it, Although, but she was supportive. Our, our father, you know, and, and, and now as a father, I understand his point of view a, a, a lot better. Um, my dad immediately tried to talk me out of it. Um, and, you know, he had been in, in in the military. He knew what military life was like, and he was trying to, um, you know, dissuade me. And as I recall, he might have even offered a car. <laughs> But um, I was—I had already kind of uh, made up my mind, and I, and you know, it was an impetuous 18-year-old. I, I, I stuck to it. I, I imagine I could have gotten out of it still at that point before I actually, you know, reported for boot camp. I will say that maybe during the first week of boot camp, when I was cleaning toilets, that conversation came back, and the offer of the car came back to mind. <laughs> and uh, start to sound a whole lot better
1: well boot camp is meant i guess to shock people out of their reality and into a new one and um and the end game is is supposed to be to program you to take orders and and do the military thing and be less of a self and more of a part of a unit but did you have I mean, had you watched movies and things like that, where you kind of saw the stereotypes, and you, you had some preparation in your mind for how shocking it might be?
0: I had a little bit. You know, one of our our other uncles um, had been in the Air Force, and I had heard his stories about Air Force boot camp, which were surprisingly brutal. I mean, because well, he went in um, during the um, during the 1970s, sometime before I went in, and I I had seen. I'd seen things like Gomer Pyle. I had seen—I don't know if I'd seen Full Metal Jacket. I don't think it had come out then. Maybe it had. Um, so I was somewhat prepared, but um, I think from probably talking to our uncle in the, in the in the Navy, I knew it. I knew it wasn't like it wasn't like I was going into the Marine Corps, and um, I think. Th- you know, the, the hardest thing was learning how to follow orders exactly to the T every time, including one of the things I think that drove people the craziest was folding clothes because 18-year-old boys are not very good at folding clothes. The military demands that you fold all of your clothes exactly to the millimeter correctly and stack them, and they're open on your, your locker is basically on display, or it was for us. And so inspectors come around. And so after you've um, left your barracks for the morning and your barracks had better be clean, if your clothes were not folded to the Navy specification, you would find your locker dumped out on the ground and you would have to start all over again. Likewise, if you didn't make your bed, your rack correctly. So those little things are learning how to polish your shoes exactly right or how to march exactly correctly um, and being yelled at. Now they couldn't, At that point in time, they could not touch recruits. That was illegal. But they could um, belittle you and and threaten you and make you feel pretty small, and they would employ group punishment so that if one person messed up the entire company, is what we were called, would suffer through extra physical training or going last to eat, which would be terrible. Things like that, so it was psychologically difficult. I did okay. I decided I would be the invisible recruit, and at the end of boot camp, that's what our company commander told me. He said, "He said, I want you to step forward." He goes, "I never even knew you were here." He goes, "You were, you were, <laughs> you were." He goes, "You never volunteered. You just, you just did what you were supposed to do." And but the other people weren't quite so fortunate. Um, you know, the stress wears on people in different ways. And after a few weeks, we had one guy. Um, show up for marching but he was wearing shoes that you run in and the company commander said why are you wearing those shoes he didn't say it exactly like that but the recruit said because I'm Bruce Jenner sir and so the company commander ordered him to start running laps and psychologically he went from there downhill and and he was he was discharged and another recruit Um, one morning when we got up, he just wasn't there because he had, um, he had left. I think that at that point in boot camp, if you were to run away, the Navy didn't try too hard to get you to come back. They didn't really, they didn't really want you that bad. (laughs) You're not
1: an investment at that point.
0: (laughs) No. And, um, so yeah, it was, it was, um, you know, it was, it was tough in a psychological way. Um. We spent a lot of time marching, a lot of times, a lot of time in, in the classroom, um, and and we learned how to res, you know respect and respond to authority and little things that that didn't seem like they would matter, like folding your clothes correctly. Well, if you were on a ship that was flooding and your gear was not stowed properly. You were a liability, so there is a you know there was a method to the madness So we also speaking of damage, we also had to go through damage control school where they put you into a darkened compartment um like like a steel compartment like you're on a ship, and then water starts gushing in through cold seawater starts gushing in through holes in the sides, and you have to employ damage control techniques to stop the flooding and we also had to go to firefighting school while in boot camps because fire on a ship is a very Um, serious thing and so that um, those are my you know my main memories of boot camp lots of marching lots of standing in line lots of getting shots we were inoculated against everything under the sun Um, they're building
1: that foundation and and getting your body ready and getting your mind ready and everything and then it really does become this bigger investment because then um, you go to a specialty school right
0: Right. So um, I went, to, I you know, I had chosen this before with the recruiter. I, when he asked me what I wanted to be, I said, I want to be a photographer's mate. And he said, no. And the reason that he said no is because they had plenty of photographers. But he he said, you don't want your hobby to be your job. So he talked me into becoming um, an operations specialist. After first trying to talk me into going to submarine school, um, I would seen submarine movies. <laughs> so uh, I went to Operation specialist school, which is operating radars and tracking friendly and unknown and enemy contacts on radar screens, both on the surface of the sea and in the air, and also keeping track of where you are on the face of the earth. In 1981, there was no GPS aboard uh, Navy ships. And so there were a variety of techniques we had to learn to figure out exactly where we were, especially when you're, you know, 2,000 miles from the nearest land. Um, so we, we learned that. We also, um, a big part of being an operations specialist was learning how not to hit other ships, because if you have a whole bunch of ships sailing together and maneuvering together, um, collisions uh, are a real threat. But By the time you figure out that you're on a collision course with another ship, it's not exactly like in the movies. You don't really have time on the bridge of the ship to suddenly make a course correction and avoid the collision. The collision has to be avoided um, quite a while before that. So we learned that in Operation Special School in Virginia Beach, um, Virginia. And that was, you know, um, an interesting place to be in the summer. It was hot it was humid. We didn't have air conditioning in the classrooms or in the barracks. Um, we were on the beach, which was kind of nice, um, but um, we were kept pretty busy with our um, with our classes. And then, depending on how high you scored in your class, you were able to pick your orders from the orders that were available. You know to what ship you might want to go to, and I wasn't at the top but I, I was, wasn't too far from the top. And so by that time, after talking to a lot of people in the Navy, I realized that I really didn't want to be on a ship that would bounce around a lot. So I picked the first aircraft carrier I could, and it was the Listen USS Kitty Hawk. But it wasn't quite ready to go there yet. I had to go to something called NTDS school, which is, um, it was like a, a data uh, computer school basically to learn how um, ships communicate with radar across distances in the battle group, you know, with symbology and um, sort of like a video game. It's very primitive by today's standards. Um, But if you were to look at, say, a movie from the 1980s where there's an air traffic control tower and you see the air traffic controller with um, symbols on his screen, um, that's very similar to what we were seeing on, on our screens. And so NTDs TDS was just a way of doing that. So went to Operation Specialist School then to the Navy Tactical Data School and then I um, was sent on to the USS Kitty Hawk which was at that time um, underway in the Indian Ocean.
1: All right I have something for you. the top gun theme <laughs> it's, it's the opening it's the opening you know uh... yes and and you know, um, that came out
0: while I was in or as I was just getting out I believe but there was a, a, a movie that came out um, you know a lot of what we learned in our schools was uh, confidential and and in fact I had a, a, a secret clearance to, to take the to school and um, but it seemed like everything the Navy taught you, they would, they would say that it was, if it wasn't a secret, it was at least confidential. And so you would, you know, you'd be in big trouble if you were to divulge it. But I remember that there was a movie that came out um, with Martin Sheen, where an air, the USS Nimitz travels back in time and is able to stop the attack on Pearl Harbor. Um, I'm the, trying to think what
1: the, the Philadelphia experiment. No,
0: not that one. That was that's when the ship goes becomes invisible. Oh, okay. <laughs> this one, this one's a time traveling one, and but they, there was so much detail about the the ships. I remember one of my. Hold on a second.
1: <laughs> Is that Toby? Remember,
0: yeah. Is he still? Can you still hear him? No. Okay, so he, I remember one of my shipmates saying, "Why did Why did they bother telling us all this stuff is confidential when they put it in the movie?" <laughs>
1: <laughs> wow. Well, that speaks for the the uh, the movie, I guess. But yeah. Oh. So you get, you um, get assigned to the Kitty Hawk, and yeah. um, and I think in your in your notes you said this was probably this was pre nuclear.
0: Right. So the Kitty Hawk was powered. There were commit there were nuclear powered carriers at the time, I think if the Enterprise was there was out there, but um, the Kiddiak was uh, powered, we, we ran on the same fuel that the jet airplanes did, JP five aviation fuel. They found that in, in ships that used to burn oil that that was actually a cleaner way of, of fueling them more efficient. So um Kiddyk was not nuclear and it was pretty old. It was it had been around since the Kennedy administration. And in fact, at one point it was called the floating White House because Kennedy spent some time on on board. And,
1: Go ahead.
0: Oh, and so I was just say everything was sort of um that time frame in technology too. So it wasn't exactly Star Trek or Star Wars or um even up to the standards of Navy ships that were coming out at the time, it was more kind of a, everything had to come more of a 1960s, 1970s feel to it.
1: So it was kind of that transition between what we would say analog and digital.
0: Yes, exactly. For example, our, you know, our, a lot of our computer systems were cooled by by chilled water coming in from the sea. And if we were to lose chilled water, we immediately had to start shutting down um, all of our systems. Um, that's not the case anymore. And so there you go. Know, there was a lot of things that I'm pretty sure were probably still powered by vacuum tubes, <laughs> even yeah. though, you know, there were a lot of circuit boards involved and the um, you know, the consoles, the radar consoles that we sat at, for example, were massive um, just to hold all the, you know, all the, um, the workings.
1: Well, I thought it was interesting the way that you said you were ferried to the air it it brought back memories of the scene and the hunt for red October when they're (laughs) flying out there on the Sikorsky or whatever the hell yeah
0: well Lizzie didn't lower us down on a rope but um (laughs) so we had the big um, Chinook helicopters which are the big twin rotor um helicopters and they're used on navy ships to ferry people and material you know for um for replenishing and so Uh, First, I went to a a godforsaken island in the middle of the Indian Ocean called um, British Indian Ocean Territory, Diego Garcia, um, which is basically an airstrip um, with people waiting to go places on it. And so I spent a few days there. It was very hot. You could go swimming, but there were sharks, so nobody wanted to go swimming. And there were a lot of snakes, I think, on the island, so you didn't want to go exploring the island too much. So after a few days of that... um, I was ferried out to the USS Wabash, um, which is a, um, was a replenishment ship and on one of those helicopters. And then, um, then I went on a similar helicopter, I think the next day to the, um, the Kitty Hawk. So that was very exciting. You know, I'd never been on a, you know, a helicopter like that um, before. It was kind of a shock when I arrived because the, the ship had been out to sea for a really long time and people were working at least in my division people that i was assigned to people were working eight hours on eight hours off around the clock seven days a week so you didn't get it you really didn't get much of a of a a break and tensions were high um as soon as i got on board i found out that somebody had been stabbed on the mast deck because they walked on a wet floor um and the person who was mopping the deck didn't take kindly to that after 90 days at sea. And I also found out about man overboard because we had, we had an incident and this is in the, all the Navy history books where a, a jet came down uh, while another one was trying to get out of the way on the flight deck and they touched. And the plane that was touched was being was shoved forward. The pilots were still on in the plane. They felt themselves being pushed off the ship in their plane. So they pulled their ejection handles while they were sitting on the flight deck of the of the carrier. So the canopies uh, the canopy of the F-14 blows off first, which is kind of a high-tech plexiglass, I guess, and it hit a crew member on deck. And he was cut really badly. The uh, pilots were picked up quickly out at sea. And the plane that had touched them was able to circle around for a while and come back and land. So what happened was the person who was injured, the crew member on the flight deck, and the flight deck of a carrier is one of the most dangerous places in the world to work. Happened to be my blood type. And I found that out because they called away what they called the walking blood bank for everybody who had A positive blood to show up at the sick at sick bay. So I ran down to sick bay with everybody else that was the same blood type, but it was, um, it was too late. The crew member had passed away. And so I found out about. Man, having to go to your man overboard station because the first thing to do when somebody falls overboard is they need to count everybody and figure out who is in the water. And at that time, we, they knew it was the two pilots were in the water and they were being picked up, but still you go through man overboard. And then I found out about the walking blood bank. And just to tell you, just to show how much tension, you know, people on the ship were still um, experiencing, Besides all that, you know in that same 24 hour period my first 24 hours on board um, we had a um, an apparent suicide a, another man overboard this time it was intentional we were we were not successful in recovering that person so it was kind of a sobering um, arrival on board the ship also um, my the people in my division um, were overworked and 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 overstressed. So there wasn't really a welcoming party, and so when I got on board, I tried to find out where I was supposed to sleep, and everybody um, just said, well, assume, well, I'm going to assume this is a family um, podcast, so I'll just say, everybody say, go away. <laughs> <laughs> and I went and found my own place to sleep, which hap- actually happened to be in another division on board the ship, they, and um, so I was well, kind of left to fend, fend for myself. And, and f-
1: say, can I, can I sleep in a bunks?
0: Yeah, I just found an empty bunk and I ask around and the, the guys in that department, they're like, yeah, we don't care. So, You um, have
1: to be a pretty, I, I mean, pretty solid confidence, I guess, human or role with it, human, to, just that whole process.
0: Yeah, you also have to be pretty desperate to get some sleep. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I mean, it turns out like any place else that the people in my division were just human beings and there were some really great, people in there some people maybe you know i I never really got along with but um but they're you know they they were just overworked and they've been out to sea for a very long time And you know i ended up kind of finding my own way within the division and and uh, things you know things did work out um but when you're at least at that point when you were the a new person on board an aircraft carrier um you know those first few days uh, might be a little rough. Well, what
1: was um, what was the food like? <laughs> the food wasn't bad,
0: actually, and it depended on what was going on. For example, if we had visiting dignitaries on board, for example, maybe a congressman was coming on board, the food suddenly got a lot better. Um, and, um, you know, we did get... Supplies of fresh food on a regular basis, and it just depended on what time you went to eat. For example, if you were if you were working the midnight shift, you might go to midrats midnight rations, and they had fresh eggs, and you could have basically as many, you know, fresh eggs as as you wanted. Um, other times, you know, it was kind of like it was more like what you might imagine from a high school cafeteria. We had a variety of choices on board. We had like a full um, mess mess deck. Um, which offered just you know salad to soup everything, um, and then we had like a uh, kind of a fast food place up forward near where my birthing apartment was, where if you were in a hurry and you just wanted to grab a hot dog or a hamburger and a milkshake, they they had those. We had you know we had six thousand people on board, and so we also had things like candy stores. They sold candy and tobacco, called Gedunk gee is what the Navy calls candy because it's the noise that something makes when it falls inside the machine. Gedunk, And so there were Gee-Dunk stores where you could go buy gummy bears or, you know, or cigarettes or whatever you, you, you wanted to. Or you could buy a cup of soup. And maybe maybe prison commissary is a good analogy for the gee store. <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, and there were other times when after, for example, after the ship had been out to sea for 90 days, they would give us kind of a day off and there would be um, activities on the flight deck where we'd stop flying. Although the planes would always be ready. We always have alert five or alert 10 fighters ready to take off because we were, you know, a warship in, and, and it was the Cold War and we had a mission to fulfill. So, there, even though we could, for example, have a barbecue and football games and play frisbee on the flight deck, um, frisbees didn't last very long, by the way. Um, we, you could go up and have hamburgers and hot dogs and barbecue, you know, ribs and everything, and they would bring on t- enough beer so that every person, every one of the six thousand crew members on board could have two beers. And that was a massive beer operation.
1: That's a massive. <laughs>
0: So they did little things like that for us. Yeah. They did do little things like that for us. So it wasn't, the food the food was not one of the worst um, parts of it. Laundry was, life on board the ship then was the, when you had to wash your clothes was pretty bad because 6,000 people, you don't have 6,000 washing machines or 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 a place to take care of that. So you put all of your dirty clothes into a mesh bag, sealed it with a giant safety pin, And sent it off to the laundry with a, you know, hope and a prayer. And what you usually got back was something that was nominally clean, but it really smelled worse than when you turned it in because nothing, you know, left the bag and it just got rinsed around with everybody else's dirty laundry and then sort of dried a little bit and then sent back to you. So people would try, yeah, people would do their best to maybe wash their own clothes or buy lots of extra uniforms before they, um, before they got underway. I had a, one of my shipmates used to um, think that he could get by just by spraying them. I walked into um, the birthing compartment one time, he had all his uniforms laid out on the on the deck, and he had a giant can of right guard, and he was just spraying them down.
1: <laughs> well, what I know you had some mundane jobs and even some really not glorious new guy jobs when you started out. I think you were yeah. talking about cleaning toilets, and you were um, having to do some fire duty where you just literally yeah. follow
0: someone around. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that kind of, that came a little bit, the fire, the fire watch came a little bit later, but um, when you're, you know, down low on the totem pole, so E1, E2, um, in the Navy, somebody has to clean things up and it's, it's, there's no janitors, you know, out at sea, so it's you. And so you have to go clean up, clean the heads, which we call, you know, what we call the bathrooms, After lots and lots and lots of people have just used that bathroom. So it wasn't always the nicest um, job. And we also, the officers didn't, obviously would not be tasked with cleaning their own facilities. So we had to take care of that. And there's just, there's always something to clean, scrape, polish. Um, Something needs to be done, you you know, constantly. So you would stand watch for eight hours doing your main job, which might be sitting at a radar scope, which sounds like fun, and it was kind of, but then when you could get off, you weren't able to just go relax, watch TV, or <clears throat> read a book, or, or go to sleep. You might need to, uh, you might be assigned to a cleaning party to clean up a, you know, a head for four hours, or you, maybe this is the time when you need to go to the post office, and you need to go see the, the dentist the and you need to take care of this and that, and before you know it, eight hours has gone by, and now it's time for you to be back, alert and ready to sit on the radar scope again for eight hours. So that was that was kind of a that that there was kind of a grind at times. The eight hours on, eight, eight hours off. So when we did get a break, when we worked, when we did pull into a port, or we did have a kind of a stand down and get a, kind of a break from. From the duty, it was always uh, a welcome break.
1: Well, as you said, this was early 80s, Cold War, still in effect. Um, And we're watching news every night, you know, kind of seeing what we can find out, what the Soviets are doing, and, you know, and you're out there, what we, I think what the term is operating, but it's kind of funny to me because I remember that uh, it would be called a cruise. Yeah. Not the cruise that I think of that I want to go on the ocean. Right. Right. So
0: these were Westpac cruises. And so it was Western Pacific and the Indian Ocean. And we did get to go to some interesting places, um, but usually only for two or three days at a time. And, you know, you can't let all 6,000 people go at the same time. So you have to sort of take turns with Liberty. But, you know, we did get to visit Australia, um, People were very welcoming there to us. Singapore, we spent a lot of time in the Philippines, spent a little bit of time in Hawaii, um, got to go to Hong Kong. Those are some of the places at that time that we got to go to on a West PAC cruise. But of course, 99% of the time we were out to sea and the carrier spends the most time out. The the smaller ships can, can relieve each other and go in and out of ports while the carrier fulfills the mission of staying out at sea and flying planes. One of my jobs later on, when I became worked in the air side of things, was keeping an eye out for Russians. One of our main jobs, and if it's, you've watched the top, you know, the original Top Gun movie, you can see um, a lot of the a lot of our activity was based on keeping an eye on the Russians and making sure that they never flew over us without an escort. So my job was part of my job was to make sure when we saw a, an unidentified aircraft in the air, was that we would make sure that that we could identify it in a variety of means. We might have um, one of our radar planes up taking a look at it. Um, But a lot of times we sent fighters up to actually um, take a look. And so they would maybe slip in behind um, an aircraft to see if it really was an airline there or to see if it was um, a Russian bear bomber coming out to to fly over the, the battle group. You know, we never had any hostile incidents between the Soviets and ourselves, and I think that's a credit to the professionalism of the the airmen and the sailors of both the U.S. and the Soviet navies at the time, because when you're in such close proximity to each other in a state of semi-aggression, um, you know things could have gone really bad. We um, we had Russian uh, small Russian ships followed American ships around all the time, um, almost like they were part of the battle group. So we could see, we would sometimes see, you know, Russian boats keeping an eye on us. And uh, and again, we were always looking out for them. But there was a lot else going on too. My my ship was awarded a Navy expeditionary medal because we were serving in the Not exactly the Middle East, but close enough during the time that the Iran and Iraq war was going on. We were supposed to be a stabilizing influence in the region. So we were always a little bit concerned that um, maybe the Iranians would decide to um, try something. But at least when I was in um, with us, they never did. So we were, there was always a little bit of tension. And a lot of the drills and things that happened on the ship were Cold War oriented um meaning that you know it was um we would hope to God that nothing would ever happen but you know World War Three could could erupt and we would be um first in line um so we needed to know what to do for example if we received a report that there had been a nuclear explosion at a certain location or um you know, that we had been attacked. So we constantly drilled in my, in my division radar in the combat information center. We constantly drilled for combat, even though we never, luckily, we never, you know, had to experience it.
1: While you were on the Kitty Hawk, were you ever part of any war game scenarios? You talk about drilling, but did they ever do any mock
0: exercises? Oh yeah, I'm sure they went on all the time and they've kind of slipped my mind, but we did participate with um, South Korea in exercises like the U.S. military does all the time. And we, I know we were, we, we sometimes had ships from other nations join us in the battle group. And so there were, there was a lot of NATO stuff, um, a lot of cooperation between nations that went on. Um, So we weren't, we definitely were not, you know, out there all by ourselves, the U.S., you know, had friends, and,
1: um, You ever, you ever have any close calls? <laughs> yeah, well, we had a, at
0: least a couple of collisions. It was Sometimes you when you were uh, replenishing the ship, Navy ships replenish side by side while they're still underway, and sometimes they bump, and the bumps can be catastrophic sometimes. We never, we had some minor bumps, but in, uh, 1984 in Sea of Japan, um, a Russian submarine um, thought that he was the commander. Thought he was behind us, probably off our stern. When in fact, he was still underneath us. He surfaced, Whoa. came to the surface underneath us, and I can still remember the the, the jarring bump that the ship felt. And sometimes, unfortunately, ships do hit things like whales at sea. But this was um, something I'd never felt before. The whole ship, the whole 80,000 ton aircraft carrier shook, rang like a bell. And um, then I found out that you know we'd hit a submarine. The uh, Navy ships, US Navy ships had uh, protocols to communicate with Soviets again, and, in or- and they did with us too, and in order to avoid um, escalating when something didn't need to be escalated. So we signaled and asked the Russians if they needed help. They told us they were, you know, to stay away. The The submarine was then, by then, on the surface, clearly damaged. And it was uh, eventually towed home. But we, we, the Kitty Hawk left, but we left a, a ship um, with the sub in case the sub, you know, started to sink and decided that they really they wanted to evacuate, so we were there to help them if they needed it. But yeah. You know, yeah. Under uh, international rules of the road at sea, obviously a submerged vessel needs to give way to ships on the surface who can't see that submarine. So the, the, the Russian was at Russian was at fault. So that was a that was one of our more interesting experiences.
1: I bet. I <laughs> bet you guys talked about that quite a bit. <laughs> So tell
0: me about your tattoos. Oh, well, um, I, have a, um, <laughs> I have a Pegasus on one arm and I have a, a unicorn on the other, which are um, not very um, imposing or threatening and my <laughs> my young my younger son doesn't know why in the world I would get something like that. I just told him it was a, a more lighthearted time back in the eighties. And at least I didn't get like the Pink Panther or something. Um, but where the um, they were just kind of on a whim in San Diego. Again, I look back at that time and I think, you know, with the, when you look back 40, when you look back 40 years, four decades, you sometimes you try to put yourself in, in the shoes of that person and you tell you think well, I wouldn't do that. Why did I walk in and off the street and just pick a, a tattoo off the wall? And the answer is because I'm not that, person and that that person is not me anymore; we share a lot in common and i the, i I recognize certain similarities between that eighteen or nineteen year old boy and myself, but you know that is not you know that 's not who i am i wouldn 't do it now i don 't think and I did have a I, I had a i had a hawk or an eagle descending out of a cloud, which I thought looked pretty cool until I got back on the ship and I looked at the ship's um emblem the kitty hawk and it looked just like it and so it'd be like if you worked for a company and you went in and had your company's logo <laughs> tattooed on your
1: yeah, boy. so i had it covered up <laughs> okay so you were just talking about you know now you can look back 40 40 years whatever it was you know almost 40 years by that time because you've been in but you're not the same you're the same person but you're not the same person So if you think back to about the time you were making that decision to get out of the Navy, you clearly were no longer that person who went into the Navy. Yeah. What made you decide to do that? Was it an incident or did you feel like you kind of had more direction now and you knew what you wanted to do?
0: Well, I think I was, by that time I was more ready to resume civilian life. I just kind of, um, there were a lot of good things about being in the Navy. Some of the, and just in general about being in the military, you know, one of the things is you you have very little autonomy, especially as a junior enlisted person. And I still was as an E-5. So you were subject to a lot of command and control over your, you know, what you did, when you did it, and so forth. And I was really ready to resume civilian life and go back to college. That was the main Uh, you know, my main uh, reason for getting out. I was, you know, a little bit disillusioned and, you know, by the time you're in a few years and you're talking to everybody else around you, everybody's like, yeah, are you a short timer? I'm a short timer. I'm getting out in two months. I've only got one month left. I've got two weeks left. So there's like a lot of excitement about getting out. Um, I did turn down a a sizable re-enlistment bonus um, to, you know, they would have paid me, uh, for me, at the time, a pretty good check, and then every year after that, they would give me another piece of that reenlistment bonus. They found out early on not to give people reenlistment bonuses all at once because they would just take it and disappear. So, I did turn down a reenlistment bonus. But I had by that time, I had mo- some money for college through the military, and decided to you know get out and and try it. I was, I would say, you know, disillusionment was was part of it. Um, and at the time I got out, I really didn't want to have, I, 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 by the way, I was not like getting out all the way. I, part of my uh, contract called for me to be in the active reserve for two years, a year and a half. I had to, um, I, I had to go to a drill every month in Tucson at the Navy um, reserve station. And two weeks out of the year, I had to, you know, report for active duty aboard a a ship. My ship was an ammunition ship, aptly called the USS Pyro out of Concord, California. And so I wasn't completely out, out, but I was, I was, I was trying to push myself away as much as possible. And when I did get out of the reserve aspect, I felt like I didn't really want to have anything to do with Navy anymore. That was, that was really the old, the old me. But, you know, recently I started rescuing some pictures from photo albums and I wish I had done it earlier because they really deteriorated over time and I started sharing them on Facebook because a lot of people that I work with now don't know that part of me that part of my history it's kind of a surprise to see somebody you work with in a kind of an earlier iteration of themselves in a military uniform on board a ship um, you know beside an F-14 or something so I started putting those pictures on Facebook and it made me you know start thinking more about it also about the same time I I, I, I realized I didn't have my medals. I won some medals just for being you know, where I was at the time. And so I wrote to the National Archives and they um, researched my case and they sent me my medals. And um, so that was nice. I have a Navy, uh, I have a sea service medal, an expeditionary medal. Uh, um, or, uh, I'm, I may be saying some of these wrong, so it'll hold me to it, and a humanitarian medal. We, we actually rescued a lot of people at sea while I was on board. Um, the um, the fall of Vietnam was not too far in the past when I joined the Navy and there were still people who were fleeing um, after the, um, the communist takeover of the, of the country. So these people were um, desperate. Um, we referred to them as boat people, which may not be the kindest term these days, they were, um, they were human beings who really needed help, and so the uh, the ship was able to pick up hundreds, if not thousands, with the battle group of people um, in flimsy boats um, who were f- um, fleeing for their lives. And for that, every crew member got a humanitarian service um, medal.
1: So where where would they? Do you know where they would take them then? Did they did they get? Refuge in the United States, or yeah, they
0: would. They were taken um, to the United States, and they were, they were processed in as uh, as refugees, and okay. uh, yeah,
1: um, so, yeah. Well, kind of as you look back and having more introspection, and and also as we know with age, we tend to do that. Um, I think back to your interest in science fiction and. Particularly Star Trek exploration uh, yeah, you know, I guess it seems like you're just a curious person, and that time in the Navy probably served a little bit of that curiosity,
0: yeah, I mean being able to see those places that we saw to be able to see Hong Kong from Victoria Peak at night all lit up or to have a Vegemite sandwich in Australia and go explore the sand dunes or to see the ancient capital um, of Korea. Um, all those things were very, um, very exciting. And it was also, um, it also helped me as a, as a curious person to, to, to meet people who were a lot different than I was to kind of get out of my bubble to meet people who had come from vastly different backgrounds who had had different experiences in life, um, different religions, different races. We were all, you know, packed into that ship together and you had to learn how to get along and how to ask questions. And, um, when you're 18, 19 years old, that's not always the easiest thing to do. Um, so all that, yeah, my curiosity was, was definitely, um, Uh, fed by that. And it had a lot to do probably with, uh, you know, with my joining.
1: Well, I I appreciate you uh, coming on the debut podcast, (laughs) telling your story. Um, Because as you said, you know, we've all got layers. And if we've had much time on earth, we have a kind of um, past careers sometimes and whole different lifetimes and sometimes they're very short but we can pack a lot into them sometimes and um, you know that's something I hope to do with this podcast is is hear from people and and also people that aren't here anymore you know with what what legacies and stories and histories and genealogy that that they have um, left behind Um, so if you uh, think back to when you you know and you're just one of hundreds of thousands of college students that fails a class. But, <laughs> you know, you failed a very difficult class too. So I think we have to kind of mention that. Um, but if you had not failed that class, do you think you would have joined the Navy? No,
0: I don't, I don't think so. I'm not sure what would have happened. Or I, I probably wouldn't have joined at that point. Maybe it would have, maybe my epiphany would have come later or something. But um, I will tell you that basically what I did not understand and I think at the time, colleges and universities were failing a lot of um, incoming students, especially when you come in in such a, a large number, like to the U of A. So I didn't understand drop, uh, drop, add.
1: Drop a course. Yeah. Right. I,
0: later on, when I was in college, I was dropping and adding like crazy. At that time, I thought, you know, kind of like thinking back to high school, it's like, oh, I'm, I can't drop that. That's admitting failure. And so I just kind of stuck with it. And they were using mathematics, they were using calculus which I'd never even seen, and so I was totally lost and um, If I had just kind of been a better advocate for myself and um, kind of asked around about what to do and and also just if I would have just been a little more um, responsible for myself, <laughs> I probably would have I would have dropped it and taken regular chemistry, and i would have I would have been fine. But things are what they are. The Navy was, um, you know, if I had not done that, I would not have had that intense growing up maturation period. I would have continued, um, you know, slowly growing up in um, kind of a very cloistered, you know, environment on campus. So I'm not, I don't regret for a minute. Um, That I joined the Navy. It was a very, it's a very important part of my life and an important part of, you know, who I am today.
1: Well, that's a wrap. I'm so grateful to Wes for being the first guest and I hope you have enjoyed the first episode of Story Chaser. More stories from interesting people are on the way, so don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe.